talk us through your process of actually writing a commentary. How do you go about that? Well, in some respects, it's like digging a ditch. You start and then you just carry on. What advice do you have for young preachers as they consult commentaries each week in their sermon prep? You've been a preacher as well as a commentator. What's a good judicious use of commentaries and where can they be unhelpful in sermon prep? Right. Yeah, you can spend all your time reading commentaries. Mm. Um, and, And depending on your church situation, all your time may be a little or a lot. Jesus himself taught us in Luke 24 that the central message of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, is the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. Uh, and, and you look for that phrase in the New Testament, it pops out all over the place. Mm. Uh, Jesus' disciples got it. Mm-hmm. That that's what they should be preaching, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. Welcome to The Afterword, a conversation on books, reading in the church, a podcast by Westminster Bookstore. I'm your host, Johnny Gibson. And today I'm joined by my colleague in Old Testament, uh, Ian Duguid. Uh, Ian spelled with two eyes, which means you're not English. That's right. Uh, I'm from Scotland. All the family's from Scotland, although I grew up in exile in England. Okay. So do you support England or Scotland in the rugby? Oh, Scotland all the time. Okay. So you don't actually have a Scottish accent. You sound English and sort of ha- with an American brogue, I think. Yeah. So my accent confuses a lot of people. It's hard to place. Uh, yeah. Because my parents were Scottish, but I grew up in the south of England. So there's a bit of a yeah. south London there. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we've lived so many different places. Yeah. Uh, that uh, when I go back to, to, to Britain, people say, oh, you sound very American. Yes. But I don't get that very often over here. Yes. Okay. And how long have you lived in the States now? Uh, this time, 25, 26 years. Okay. So university, college, where did you do that? I did my undergraduate at Edinburgh University in Scotland in electrical engineering. Uh-huh. And um, what brought you to the States? Uh, well, what brought me to the States in the first place was getting married to an American while living in Africa. Okay. Uh, I was a missionary for two years in Liberia in West Africa using my engineering uh, at a Christian radio station and a mission hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I met my wife, and she's from the States. Uh, and so we came over here originally for her brother's wedding hmm. uh, and uh, had no intention of of staying any longer than that. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, things turned out differently. So you, you've been captured by an American and kept in exile for 25 right. years. Yeah. Great. And so what brought you to uh, or what brought you into ministry? Yeah, I sensed a call to ministry when I was about 15. Hmm. Uh, and the counsel I received at that point is that's great. If it's a real call, it's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you need to get a life first. If mm-hmm. you're going to minister to people, you have to have some experience of their lifestyle and, and experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I pursued the engineering track uh, after that, uh, worked in the oil industry for a couple of years after graduation, mm-hmm. and then two years as an engineer on the mission field as a bridge uh, into going to seminary, uh, which for me was a great preparation. It gave me real-world questions when I came to seminary. Yeah. And you came and studied at Westminster here in Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, what were some of the big influences on you at seminary? Uh, well, we lived with Tim and Kathy Keller for the first three months we were here mm. and then bought a house down the street from them. So Tim and Kathy were huge. Mm. Um, Tim and Kathy had actually been my worst, wife's first introduction to Reformed theology. Mm. Uh, when he was pastoring down in Virginia, my wife was in college, uh, not too far away. 
Um, uh, another big influence, uh, even though he wasn't uh, physically here, was Ed Clowney. Hmm. Uh, I vividly remember listening to his sermon on Psalm 90 on a cassette tape uh, in the library basement. Um, and I was instantly transfixed. Huh. You know, I said to myself, when I grow up, this is what I, wanted, I want to be. So what was it about that sermon that captivated you and made you want to preach like that? Uh, it was it was interactive with the text in a way that that drew in all the background. He he opens with his own version of an ancient Near Eastern love song, hmm. translated into uh, into uh, to modern English. Um, but it's I mean, it's there in in Pritchard's ancient Near Eastern texts, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and engaged with the text and drew us to Christ as the the, the singer of that psalm. Hmm. And I thought I've I've never heard preaching like this, mm. uh, and uh, and that that attracted me. That's that's what I want to do. Okay, and the Lord has called you into ministry. You've been a pastor in various parts of America and various churches, uh, but you're also a writer. And here we have some of your commentaries, uh, uh, books that you've written, mainly commentaries. Um, but let me back up a bit. When you were at seminary, or when you first went into pastoral ministry. Uh, is that when you felt the desire to write and to publish? Well, I, I'd always written full manuscript sermons, mm-hmm. uh, and that that worked for me. Uh, so I had these manuscripts, uh, and then uh, in I was a church planter at that point in Oxford in England, mm-hmm. uh, and our Sunday evening series was going through Genesis, uh, and so I had a collection of sermons on on Abraham uh, that I thought were were perhaps worthy of publishing. Mm-hmm. So I, I shopped them around a number of publishers in Britain and got the common reaction where the initial readers loved them and the marketing people said, this will never sell. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had this collection of, of, of sermons, but nowhere to publish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I came across the States to visit Westminster uh, and had a conversation with Tremper Longman. Uh, mm-hmm. And he said, well, I, I also have this manuscript by Ray Dillard, which is sermons on Elijah and Elisha. Mm. Uh, so let me pitch this to PNR and see if we can we can get them to publish this as part of a series. Mm. Uh, so that's actually the origins of the Gospel Calling the Old Testament series. Okay, um, and was was that your first book that you published? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then what was your first commentary? Uh, so my first commentary was on Ezekiel. Okay. Um, again, Tramper was the bridge into that. Hmm. Um, he was one of the editors of the NIV application commentary series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, you could pretty much count Ezekiel scholars uh, generally on, on the fingers of two hands and evangelical uh, Ezekiel scholars on a very small list. So uh, my name, I'd done my uh, PhD thesis on Ezekiel. And mm-hmm. so, so my name was was you know was put forward for that, and so they invited me to write on Ezekiel, which is a pretty daunting place to start. I was just going to say, you know, you writing a commentary is daunting, full stop. But you chose one of the biggest books in the Old Testament. Yes, well, it chose me. <laughs> um, so obviously, since I done my thesis on it, I was very familiar with the book, and yeah. so it was it was home turf in yeah. many respects. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, it's it's daunting to write a commentary on a forty eight chapter yeah. book. And, uh, you know, you'll go to heaven one day, you'll meet Ezekiel. Is there, are there particular questions you have for him that you want to ask him about that book? Um, some, certainly some textual questions, you know, <laughs> is this, is this right? Um, yes. I, and, and a lot of them will be around, have, have we understood what you were saying rightly? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've done our best to, to, to get the point of what you're saying, but 
did, you know, did we get it right? What, what did we miss? Yeah. There's so much, there's always so much more in biblical books mm. than, than we've grasped yet. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I want to ask some of the Old Testament prophets are how much did you realize you were speaking mm. about Christ? Right. We, you, you know you were, we know you were, but how much did you really get? Because sometimes right. they speak better than they realize. Right. You know. Um, okay, so you've written a bunch of commentaries. I think you were saying about a dozen or 15 or so. Uh, writing a commentary is quite a big deal. It's, it's, a, it's God's sacred word that you're commenting mm. on. Uh, but also Ezekiel, as we've just mentioned, it's a big book, and some of these are big uh, books of the Bible that you've written on. Talk us through your process of actually writing a commentary. How do you go about that? Well, in some respects, it's like digging a ditch. You start, and then you just carry on. Mm-hmm. One of the easy aspects of writing a commentary is that once you've got into a rhythm, you just mm-hmm. have to replicate that. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, when I've uh, written other books or edited other books, you have to ask all kinds of questions like, does this chapter belong here? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it even belong in the book? Um, how, do I, how does this all fit together? Uh, whereas with a commentary, mm-hmm. you start at chapter one, verse one, and, and you just plodge on until the end. And you know when you got to the end because that's the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the challenge is, is getting used to the style of that particular commentary series. Mm-hmm. So you have to adapt to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to decide what kind of commentary you want this to be. Is this mm-hmm. is this a commentary for scholars in which you're going to delve into all of the mm-hmm. academic details? Uh, is it a, a commentary for pastors? Um, is it a commentary for lay people mm-hmm. uh, in which you want to make things simple for people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so you, you have to figure that out. And and then you've just got to do it mm-hmm. uh, and plod away day after day week after week, chipping away at it until you get to the end. Yeah. I remember speaking to one <clears throat> New Testament commentator at Moore College, Peter O'Brien, and uh, he mentioned to me it's about crunching a few verses every day. Mm. Just sort of go in, he says, and you just sort of crunch through them uh, each day. Um, just to back up a wee bit, do you write the introduction to a commentary first, or do you do that after you've written your commentary on the verses? What way do you do that? Yeah, I, I do the introduction last. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I, I have ideas about all of the things that are going to be in the introduction, you know, authorship, date, mm-hmm. purpose, audience, those kinds of things. But I find it's easier to do that, that at the end. And uh, what about the structure of the whole book and also the structure of each chapter? Uh, do you do that after you've gone through the verses or do you actually try to find a structure to begin with and then tweak it at the end of your commentary? Yeah, usually I know the structure of the passage and the larger structure of the book before I start working on, on the individual chapters. Yeah, uh, It helps to see how each piece fits within the whole. And what's your process with using other commentaries? Um, do you have the Hebrew text in front, do your own writing first, then consult commentaries or do you just get going with the commentaries to begin with and do a yeah, mix of both? A, a, a bit of both. Uh, so I start with the text and uh, kind of make my own observations. But often that will raise questions. Uh, so you, uh, I'm currently working on a commentary on Genesis, uh, and so I'm in the Joseph narrative. And uh, when the brothers are brought back by Joseph Steward, there's a comment that, uh, and, and Joseph was still at home. Mm-hmm. Well, that's odd. Mm. What, you know, why is that there? 
Um, I mean, I could spend hours trying to figure it out, but when you have a specific question like that, uh, it's often helpful to to survey two or three commentaries mm-hmm. and see if you know see if other people have usually thought of the same question before. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes it's helpful to get that rather than spend ages trying to wrestle with something, reinventing the wheel essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and and I'll typically have three or three or four, maybe five commentaries that are going to be most useful to mm-hmm. me. Um, I, I feel like you get a kind of law of diminishing returns after a while. Yeah. Um, and and of course <clears throat> there are particular commentaries that are good for particular things. And so there'll be certain commentaries you go to if you have a Hebrew question, mm-hmm. uh, and other commentaries you go to if you uh, if you have an application question. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't feel like I I have to complete my work before I I look at, at what other people have done. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> from just a a practical writing perspective, do you take a lot of notes from these commentaries you're reading, handwritten and uh, in handwriting, or do you just type? Um, do you just start with a blank document, start typing, or do you have to actually sketch out a rough skeletal outline of where you're going? What, what's your writing process actually look like on your Word document? Right. On your yeah. So and, at, at this point in my career, quite often I've got something on some passages ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm, I'm often <clears throat> not starting entirely from scratch. Uh, so for you know this Genesis commentary, uh, I've I've. Uh, taught preaching classes on the patriarchal mm. narratives. I've <clears throat> I've walked through the Hebrew text in a number you know, a number of, of the chapters, and so often I already have a set of notes, mm-hmm. um, and and so that gives me a starting point. But but in general, I, I'm convinced that the art of writing is rewriting. Mm. So so I tend to start out just writing, mm-hmm. um, and and then the other dictum. It, Loosely applied is Ernest Hemingway's motto that you you write drunk and edit sober, mm-hmm. um, which I don't take literally, <laughs> but but which inspires me to say, okay, first time through, I'm not too bothered about punctuation, I'm not constantly refining everything. I know mm-hmm. I'm going to come back and redo it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm chasing the idea at that point, trying to get the yeah. ideas down. Yeah, and then once I have that down, I'll I'll, I'll go over it and go over it and go over it and mm-hmm. polish and polish and polish until mm-hmm. it's finally in the shape that I want. So on that editing process side of things, do you print it out at that point and hand edit it, you know, with a pencil, or do you still stay on your computer and edit yeah, it? Yeah, generally I stay on my computer and mm-hmm. edit that. They, I will often at at the very end, you know, kind of final proofreading, print it out because sometimes mm. there are things you can see on a printout yeah. that you can't see, you know, yeah. extra spaces or whatever. Yeah. Um, but generally, it's just easier for me to work on the computer screen hmm. and uh, fix it at the point. I I've always find uh, you're talking about the very end stage. It's amazing even the difference between a Word document manuscript and the typeset proofs. Right. Hmm. I've just found it amazing how much you catch on the typeset proofs right. that you didn't see in a Word document. Uh, Robert Gordon, my supervisor in Cambridge, who you would know, uh, once said to me that the last ten percent of writing. Uh, you know, as that says, you're brushing it up, takes 80% of the time of mm, writing. Right. And I, I remember thinking, what's he talking about? Like surely most of it, but he was such a meticulous editor of my work. <laughs> I realized what he meant. And I think that is often writing, uh, people don't spend that time actually on the last 10%. Right. And then they end up producing something that is good, but it could have been far better if they'd actually really worked on their 
sentences and their crafting of how they said things. Yeah, everybody wants to be a writer, but nobody wants to do the work. It's like everyone wants to yeah. play the piano, but nobody wants to spend four hours a day practicing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what? Uh, where do you like to write? What locations yeah, I, do you I, I find can productive? Write anywhere. Hmm. Um, kind of by by force of necessity. So I, you know, I haven't always had an office to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were church planting in in uh, England, uh, the the church office was was a, a closet that I shared with the toys for our mothers and toddlers group. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've 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 learned how to how to work anywhere. Hmm. Um, obviously, it's nice to have an office with you know an additional screen to work from. Um, but uh, yeah, if if I if I'd had to have perfect environment, then I would mm. never have written mm. half of what I've written. Um, so you can work anywhere, but do you find a certain place at home or somewhere else that's most productive? No, I can, I, I can pretty can much go be anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. When I was in Cambridge, uh, Tyndale house was where I would do my research right. and get all the notes and type it all in. And I would go to the university library hmm. and that's where I crafted my thesis. Right. Nobody knew me. Right. Big, you know, the big reading room there. Right. No distractions. No distractions. Put my phone in the locker locker and sit with a pencil mm. with printed out and shape the thing. Um, how do you block out distractions? Are you a multitasker when you're on the computer? Can you have your email going off at the same time or do you switch off all distractions while you're writing? Yeah, I try to. It, it's becoming harder. You know, 30 years ago before email and mobile phones it was much easier to mm. to block out distractions and and i feel like my attention span is shorter than it used to be 30 years ago mm. um but uh, yeah so i'm i'm i make sure i don't get notifications mm-hmm. because that you know that's instantly distracting um mm-hmm. and so that i have to actually go and and change programs in order to be distracted so mm-hmm. that um but still, I I find that it's harder to really focus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so easy to get distracted into, okay, what's going on, on the internet? And before you know it, fifteen minutes has gone by, and that that's fifteen minutes you could have been writing. Yeah, totally. And weeks like these, when the World Cup football's on, mm-hmm. it's uh, incredibly hard to get the work done. Yeah. Um, does anybody else edit your work, or do you do you before you submit to a publisher? Are you the only person who's done the editing, or does? Yeah, so it, it, it's always surprised me how little editing most publishers do. Um, but, you know, I I had this vision that when I submitted a manuscript, it would be gone over line by line mm. by somebody who would provide all these helpful comments. And uh, and that's been a rare experience for me. Mm. There are some series where we we've had that. So with the reformed expository commentary series, uh, Phil Riken and Rick Phillips and mm-hmm. Dan Del Rayani, um, and myself, we've we've tried to provide that for people um, with the ESV, ESV expository commentary that I'm one of the editors for. We've we've mm-hmm. tried to provide substantive feedback for people, um, but generally it's been pretty much up to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done more editing of other people's work than had other people really yeah. in mind. And of course, as a writer, what you want is for your editor to send it back with a big check mark saying, don't change a thing. Yeah. Um, which of course is not helpful at all. Mm-hmm. Um but it's it, it can be it can be kind of challenging then to go back and and okay, so I've got to change this, I've got to change that. Mm-hmm. Um I try to approach <clears throat> it with the perspective that if this was not clear to my editor. It's not going to be clear to my readers. Mm-hmm. So anytime somebody flags something and says, "I don't think this is the best way to say it," uh, I'm always going to look for, "Okay, the, I got to rethink the sentence." Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, which is the most enjoyable book that you've written a commentary on in the Bible? Um, I think I had most fun with the Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did, actually did two commentaries on that, the Reformed Expository Commentary, which is essentially sermons, mm-hmm. and then the, the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary, which is a bit more academic. Yeah. So briefly, how do you think we should read the Song of Songs? Um, I think we need to, to see it uh, first, first and foundationally uh, in terms of wisdom literature, uh, guidance about marriage and sexuality, which in, in our world, as in every world in which Christians mm. have lived, is always a contentious topic. Mm. The world is always seeking to catechize us in its perspective on, on sex, marriage, and family. Mm. Uh, and, and God gives us his wisdom. Mm-hmm. which is always counterintuitive in different ways, in different times, in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, because marriage is the primary metaphor for Christ and the church, um, and, and, and in fact, Paul tells us that marriage is designed to be that metaphor. Mm. In other words, if we didn't have Christ and the church, we wouldn't need the metaphor of marriage. Mm. Um, therefore, what wisdom literature has to teach us about marriage is also going to teach us something about our relationship with Christ. Mm. But it's a more sophisticated connection. It's not a one-to-one that the husband is always Christ and the bride mm. is always the church. Um, otherwise, you, you have to, otherwise, the husband always has to be right in the song mm. um, because Christ can't do anything wrong. And then you also have to fill in the, the minor characters and give them some significance too. Mm. Uh, and so the you know so the watchmen of the city who who beat the bride become unskillful uh, preachers who beat their people with the law. Mm-hmm. You think mm, I'm not sure that that's what the writer has in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so that's been your most enjoyable commentary to write. What's been the hardest one? Hardest one to write. Um, in terms of workload, that was also the hardest one. Mm. Um, I started out. Back in, I think, 2000, uh, teaching the, the Psalms and Wisdom Literature class at Westminster, California. Mm. And at first, I gave as little time as possible to the song because I had no idea really what to do with it. Yeah. But I thought, if I don't know what to do with it, with my background and training, how do I expect regular mm. preachers to do this? Mm-hmm. So, so I set myself the, the task of, okay, I've, I've got to figure this book out mm-hmm. and, and get to the point where, where I can preach it and then help others preach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that took 15 years to, right. to huh. do. So some commentaries, uh, there you go, have taken a decade and more to do and others maybe come together easier. Right. Um, is there a, a book of the Old Testament you'd love to write a commentary on before you go to be with the Lord? Um, yeah, ambitions. I, Isaiah is, is one that I think I would, I'd, I'd love to have a crack at. It's a big, it's a big mm. ask, so I'm not sure that I'll, that I'll get that opportunity. But uh, yeah, mm. that, would be, that would be fun. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for young preachers as they consult commentaries each week in their sermon prep? You've been a preacher as well as right. a commentator. <clears throat> What's a good judicious use of commentaries and where can they be unhelpful? In sermon right. prep, right? Yeah, y- you can spend all your time reading commentaries, mm. um, and and depending on your church situation, all your time may be a little or a lot. So some, you know, some people who are senior pastors in large congregations have the time to be able to consult twenty or thirty commentaries. Rick mm. Phillips does that. I've I've never had that time, mm. and and 
again, diminishing returns, I think, kicks in after a while. Mm. So uh, the problem with a lot of commentaries is that they're not asking, un- answering the questions that preachers are asking mm-hmm. of a text. They're answering the questions that academics have of text. Mm-hmm. I was vividly <clears throat> struck when I was doing my PhD studies at uh, Cambridge, um, and I visited uh, a fellow, former student uh, uh, of mine, or a fellow of mine, uh, who is pastoring a church in, in Washington, D.C., and his evening service, he was preaching on Ezekiel. And he'd got to, on that Sunday evening, a passage that I dealt with, I was dealing with in my dissertation, and he preached a wonderful sermon and didn't talk at all about the things that I was wrestling with in my, mm. in my thesis and shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the commentaries often are about the thesis questions, not mm. about the preacher's questions. Mm. Um, often literary analyses can be more helpful to preachers than mm. conventional commentaries mm. because uh, literary critics are often looking at the, the text as story, uh, as communicative uh, mm. piece. And so they'll flag for you, you know, uh, ways in which the text is highlighting particular characters or uh, patterns that are showing up in mm. multiple chapters away, mm. um, which often, certainly in traditional commentaries, have not really shown up. Mm. Um, and then you want, so you want to have a commentary series that provides you with total coverage of the whole Bible mm-hmm. so you can consult something that's an, that's an off your text question and then acquire three or four really good commentaries on the, the passages that you're preaching on, which will be easier if you're preaching consecutively through books. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the advantages of preaching consecutively through books is you can afford to buy several commentaries yeah. on a, for a series that's going to last you, you know, several months. Yeah. Whereas if each week you're preaching on a different book of the Bible, how do, how do you have the coverage? For yeah. That? Yeah. And Tremper Longman's got that very helpful little book, Commentary on Commentaries mm-hmm. and Carson for the New Testament. I always consult that if I'm going to start a new right. series on a book. And, and then there's also uh, uh, Ligonier has a, a, a website. Mm. Uh, I think it's a, uh, uh, Keith Matheson, I, I, if I'm thinking right. Um, and he lists out the top, mm. his view of the top five commentaries on each book of Old and New Testament. Very helpful on Ligonier's website. Yeah. Okay. A um, couple more questions as we come to a close. Um, one of the things we really love here at Westminster, it's one of our distinctives, is Christ-centered preaching. Uh, what is it that we mean by that, and how do you try to bring that in in your commentaries? Yeah, yeah. What what we mean by that is, as as Jesus himself taught us in Luke twenty-four, that the central message of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, is the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. Uh, and, and you look for that phrase in the New Testament, it pops out all over the place. Mm. Uh, Jesus' disciples got it, mm-hmm. that that's what they should be preaching, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. Um, now, different passages have different ways of getting there. Uh, and so, so it's not simply that there's a bolt-on piece that we put mm. into every sermon, here's the Jesus piece, mm. uh, that we kind of uh, cut and paste into every sermon. Uh, what we're looking for is is the organic way in which each part of Scripture mm. points us to Christ, um, and and that can be in terms of typology. Those are the mm. often the obvious ones, the easiest ones, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, for example. Uh, it can be in terms of of law and gospel. Every passage has a law to it, in the sense that it it wants us to do something, to think something, to believe something differently from what we're doing. 
Uh, and that's always going to convict us of our sins. Mm. And Christ is always going to be the person who has perfectly kept that law, the law mm. of that passage. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and in him, we are acceptable before God, mm. Uh, mm. both through his, his death and his active obedience. Mm. Um, and, and, and so that's a way that, you know, even if you can't find other ways to find Christ in the text, that, mm. that way will always bring, it, bring you mm. to Christ. Yeah, it's something I've, I, I've appreciated about your preaching and also the commentaries that you've written. I always find them very helpful uh, in giving me some way that I can find my way to Christ. Sinclair Ferguson talks about uh, intuition, mm. that it's not about putting a grid on right. and, or a, you know, a formula that you just stick the text yeah. into and out pops Christ. Yeah, and, and pe- people learn to that. read the Bible the way they've heard it preached. Yeah. And so, so my kids can intuit. Yeah, you know how how we should get from a text to the Bible mm. uh, to Christ. Yeah, well, we've spoken about commentaries today, and we're very thankful for your labors uh, in the church and for the kingdom. I've benefited from them greatly, and I know many others have. Uh, but it's not the only book you've written. Your most recent book actually is of a quite different genre. Do you want to tell us about that book? Yeah, so it's called Me and God: A Twenty One Day Country Music Devotional. Uh, I got inter- interested in country music when we spent a year in Mississippi, where, of course, all of the cu- radio stations are country music. Uh, and I was fascinated by the stories mm. uh, and the breadth of experience that those stories covered of real life, mm-hmm. uh, not just love and romance, uh, but marriage, mm. children, uh, divorce, death, and what's beyond death. Uh, and, and I discovered that uh, many of the songs have a gospel flavor to them. Mm. Uh, some of the singers began, of course, in churches. Uh, some of them are, are, are of course, believers. Mm. Um, and, and some of the songs, even if they're not themselves Christian songs, they're posing questions to which the gospel is really the answer. Mm. Uh, and so this uh, devotional kind of walks you through the Christian life from becoming a Christian uh, to living as a Christian to eternity with Christ in the light of different country music songs. So each devotional, and they're all they're short, they're very simple. Uh, each devotional is linked with a QR code to a, a Spotify uh, link, okay. uh, so you can go and listen to the song. Mm-hmm. Um, but each one has a country music song and a Bible text uh-huh. and a brief thought related to that. Okay. Well, first of all, who knew that Ian Duguid was into country music? And not, not the classic profile. Yeah, you're not. And then who knew that you could also find, as Van Til would say, a point of contact between that world of that genre of music and actually the gospel and make the bridge there between that world and the gospel. I think it's a fascinating little book that you've produced. Uh, well, look, thank you very much for coming on the show, Ian. It's been great to have you on. My pleasure. wish you every blessing in your writing and labors in the kingdom. And I need to announce that we have a giveaway uh, in light of this episode, and that is a giveaway of the full set of the ESV expository commentary series which is this big uh, black book here at the bottom uh, the full 11 or 12 volume set is going to be given away so if you want to enter uh, go to wtsbooks.com forward slash afterward that's wtsbooks.com forward slash afterward if you want to enter for that draw and uh, that is going to be a great prize for whoever gets it 12 volumes of the ESV commentary expository series coming their way. Thanks very much, Ian. Good to have you on the show.